Christmas child, like serving at the center is sort of like instant gratification. You know, you get to put these boxes together and you know they're going to go off to somebody who's going to open it and be excited. So you don't always get to see the immediate uh, benefit, I guess, of what you do. But when you put a shoebox together, at least you see, yeah, that's going somewhere. So anyway, let's turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 1 again as we continue our series on this letter, which was written to encourage the church to hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering. And his main way of getting Christians to do that is to focus on Jesus Christ, to be enamored with Him and to be encouraged by all that's true for us in a relationship with Him. That, that's his goal in the letter. And so last week we looked at seven different descriptions of his greatness that were listed in the first four verses, and the last one that he mentioned ended with the statement that Jesus had become much superior to angels. That's a concept that the writer of Hebrews felt needed to have more elaboration. He wanted to spend some more time on that, and actually he does spend that that time for the rest of the chapter. It's all about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And so we're going to be looking at that. We're going to learn from why he spends that time this morning. And so let's read beginning in verse 3 and all the way to the end of the chapter. Don't have my glasses, so I'm trying to find the starting point. Here we go. Of Jesus, of the Son, he says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Lord, we will need your help this morning, we, we always do, but this morning we need to see how this applies 
I'm guessing a, a number of us are not all that infatuated with angels and don't need this comparison. And yet, and yet, there are things that we rank higher than Jesus. And so we ask that this morning you would help us through the flow of this author's words and through your divinely inspired word, you would also show us what this, how this changes us and show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, apparently in the first century, at least among Christians who came from a Jewish background, angels were a big deal. They thought angels were very impressive, maybe even more impressive than Jesus. We know that because of how much time the author takes at the beginning of this letter to address the issue. Uh, it gets most of a chapter. As far as I know, this is the longest passage in the Bible that teaches directly about angels. And the whole point of it is to show why Jesus is greater than them. So apparently they needed to hear that because they had it reversed. Maybe it was because of the might of angels displayed in the Old Testament. We're going to read a couple passages about what angels have done. It's very impressive. Um, maybe it had something to do with what Stephen said to the Jewish leaders in Acts 7, 53, where he said, "'You received the law as delivered by angels.'" So they had a high regard for the law, and angels seemed to be responsible for them having it. So we don't know for sure what it was that made them think, you know, angels could be really ranked way up there, even higher than Jesus. We don't really know what was going on there, but we do know they were very impressed with angels, too impressed, and so the writer wanted to redirect their passion to Jesus himself. And we might need some help in seeing how this applies to us, because I doubt that we're in the same place. I'm sure there are some believers who pay excessive attention to angels, but what, from what I can tell, more likely the situation is we just don't care that much. <laughs> but we do have our own misplaced passions, like they did, just there in different places. There's always a temptation to rank something higher than Jesus in our affections. And so the same reasoning that puts angels in their proper place will also put everything else in our lives in their proper place. So we're going to see how as we follow the teaching of this passage and then how it intersects with our lives today. So here's how we'll spend our time. We're going to first just establish the writer's premise that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then we're going to look at why one might be tempted to think the reverse, to think that angels are way up there and Jesus is somehow lower. And then we'll list the reasons that he gives that Jesus is greater than all the angels. And that comes from a number of Old Testament texts that are quoted. And then we'll just close with how this applies to anything else in our lives that we're passionate about. So here we go. The main point of the passage, Jesus is greater than the angels. Having said that Jesus has become much superior to angels, the writer backs it up with seven Old Testament quotes, most of which are from the Psalms. One is from 2 Samuel, beginning with a quote from Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now let me make a point from that before going any further. By quoting Old Testament passages... It demonstrates a critical method 
for how we are to develop convictions about things. This person is appealing to what the Bible says to make their point. This writer treats the Bible as having authority, as having the final word about whatever it speaks about. He doesn't just say, Jesus is superior to the angels because that's my personal preference. Or because I, I like it to be that way. That sounds good to me. No, he says the proof that Jesus is superior is because God's word says that he is. And here are seven passages that convincingly say that Jesus is superior. So I take that as fact. <laughs> That's how we need to develop our convictions about anything. We start with the conviction the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts and that what we have is a very reliable translation of those inerrant originals. The Bible's without error, and it is the final authority about everything that it talks about. We've got to start with that conviction. We have to start with conviction of Deuteronomy 32, 47, which says, God's word is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Without that conviction, we can make up anything we want about Jesus, about angels, about how we're to live, any doctrine, we can make it up unless this word is reliable, unless this is the actual standard that we conform to. So, very important point. Just see what the author's doing. He's, he's showing us how to come to convictions by quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament verses. So, back to the topic at hand. What does the Old Testament say about Jesus? Where does it say that he's superior to angels? Well, in Psalm 2 and in 2 Samuel 7, for starters. Those are the places quoted in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In both of those quotes, the writer's saying, Those are ultimately about Jesus and they establish him as greater than the angels. Because did God ever say to an angel, you are my son? Or I will be to him a father? No, he never said that. <laughs> he only said that to Jesus, <laughs> who is the subject of these Old Testament passages, ultimately. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. Angels are great as we're going to see, but they aren't God. Only Jesus is God. Only God calls Him the Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That makes Him far greater than the angels, and that's why the angels worship Him, not the reverse. Verse 6, when He brings the firstborn into the world, speaking of Jesus, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. Angels worship Jesus because he is greater than them being very God, a very God. Now, the writer will give more reasons why Jesus is greater than the angels, and we'll come back to those. But for now, let's just talk about why angels are pretty great. <laughs> why are they pretty great? As I mentioned before, we might not be overly impressed with angels today, but maybe that's because we don't really understand them. I searched a Christian retail website for angel-themed gifts because whatever you envision an angel to be, 
that reflects your belief about who they are, what they do. So here's what was offered. Gifts that feature praying angels, guardian angels, friends and nurses who are angels, baby angels, angels blessing your wedding and your retirement, and angel wings commemorating the passing of your pet. Granted, the seven angels with seven plagues would not make a great Christmas ornament, so didn't see that in the list. <laughs> but I do think we could use some clarity on angels. If we get our view of angels from a gift shop, it might evoke sentimental feelings and, and good vibes, but it won't help us feel the impact of this passage, which is that angels are pretty great, but Jesus is even greater than them. So let's do a brief theology of angels so we have this right view about them. It's not without reason that these believers were very impressed. We'll start with a description from verse 7. Of the angels, he says, that is, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote from Psalm 104. So angels are made. God, the God of Psalm 104, makes them. They aren't eternal like God is, though they do apparently live for millennia. Michael the archangel is mentioned in the letter of Jude as having disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. So Michael was around during the time of Moses. And then he is also spoken of in Daniel chapter 12 as being active in the end times. When everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life is delivered from sin and death. So Michael's existence spans thousands of years. Surely from the time of creation to the end of the world and probably beyond. I rather think that Elrond in The Lord of the Rings is patterned after Michael. Because he says to Gandalf, I was there, Gandalf, 3,000 years ago when the strength of men failed. I don't do it as good as Hugo Weaving, but like, I think 3,000 years, Elrond, I was there, you know. But Michael could say, I was there when Moses died. You can say that today. They live for a really long time. They're not exactly like us. They had a beginning, though. Unlike God, he makes his angels. They are made by God. They are part of creation. They didn't exist forever, unlike God, who is eternal. But what does he make them? How can we describe these angels? Well, it says he makes his angels winds. That communicates something that you can't see, but it has tremendous power. Angels are unseen because they are spiritual beings, not physical ones. You can't see them unless they take physical form, which sometimes they do. So later in Hebrews 13.2, we're told not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's entirely possible to be eating and drinking with a person across the table who is, in fact, an angel in human form. Abraham had that exact experience in Genesis 18. Three men came to him. They're about to go down to Sodom to check it out and to do God's will there. But first, they had a meal with Abraham before they did that. They were angels. 
That can happen. Angels can take human form. They have power like the wind has. Wind spins turbines that power cities, but wind can also lay waste to those same cities with a hurricane or with a tornado. So can fire, which is the other description of angels. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Fire can power cities in a power plant, and, and it can destroy those cities in a wildfire. So angels are these unseen spiritual beings. They have great power, but what do they use that power for? Well, verse 14 gives us insight. It says, are they, that is the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's what they are, spirits sent out by God to perform certain tasks for the sake of believers. And when you consider what God sends them to do in the world, it's both encouraging and very sobering. Because sometimes they're on a mission of mercy, and sometimes they're on a mission of judgment. You see both of those together in the account of Sodom in Genesis 19. Two angels came to Sodom after they had been with Abraham. They found Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. They said to him, we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Sodom was a place of great unbelief and hardness of heart towards God, and it was evidenced in their sexual sin and in their violence. And the angels said, the Lord has sent us to destroy this place. He is not going to allow this evil to continue. It was a mission of judgment. In Luke 17, 29, Jesus described what would happen to the city this way. Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And it was angels who carried it out. Angels have the power to destroy, to execute God's judgment for evil. But angels also have the power to execute God's mercy. Because in the case of Lot, that's what also the Lord sent them to do. In the same chapter, the angels told Lot to get his family out of the city, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. The angels literally dragged Lot's family away from the destruction and saved their lives. And that was because the Lord was being merciful to him. The same Lord who sent the angels to destroy the city sent them to rescue Lot and his family out of it. A mission of judgment for some, a mission of mercy for others. And angels did both. That, friends, is the purpose of angels, in G for believers anyway. They are sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Lot and his family, who are still sinful in their, own right, in their own ways, but God decided to have mercy on them. He sent his angels to bring them out to rescue them from what was about to happen. Angels are powerful spiritual beings who are on deck, you might say, to do whatever God in his sovereign wisdom and love wants done for the benefit of his people. Now, does that mean every believer has a guardian angel? 
Big question. I think the scriptures are inconclusive on that. Psalm 91.11 does say concerning those who take refuge in God that He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. But do you have an assigned angel? Well, I like the football analogy that I read in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He said, if the angels aren't providing one-on-one coverage, they're at least playing zone defense. (laughs) You're covered either way. (laughs) To fill us out some more, here's the activity of angels, what it looked like in the days of the early church. We have records of what they actually did as the gospel is advancing around the world. Here's some examples from Acts. In Acts 8, an angel told Philip, to go out to a certain road in the desert. He didn't tell him why, but that's where Philip encountered encountered the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he comes up to the chariot and says, do you know what you're reading? He says, no, nobody can explain it to me. And there's your golden opportunity to preach from that text, Jesus Christ. Then the man gets saved, and he gets baptized right there, and he goes on his way rejoicing, and now northern Africa has a heritage of Christianity for thousands of years started with this angel saying, go over to that road. I won't tell you why, but just go there. Serving for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Acts 10, an angel spoke to a non-believer named Cornelius in a vision and told him to send for Peter, who came to him at the request into this house. This is a Gentile. He's not supposed to be in there, but he says, well, God sent me. I had a dream too. I had an angel visit me. So what, what, what's going on here? He comes to the house. He preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his whole family are converted, and the gospel makes its way into the Gentile world. An angel was involved in that. In Acts 12, an angel sprung Peter out of prison Uh, The night before he was about to be executed, that's a miraculous and amazing story. He's shackled, he's in like the inner rooms, and all of a sudden his chains fall off, and the doors are opening, and he's walking past the guards. I don't know why they don't see me, but we're going past him anyway. The big iron gate to the prison opens up of its own accord, and he walks out, and the angel disappears. (laughs) They do that. That really happened. Angels play a part in the lives of believers, particularly when it will result in more gospel ministry and the salvation of souls. And that's probably why most of the modern-day visions or or sights of of, of angels, they have to do with missionary work. That's where I hear most of those stories from. So you might be familiar with the famous story of uh, Jim Elliott and the others who were trying to reach... a group in uh, Ecuador. And so they were slain on a river, um, speared to death. And while they were being slain, there were witnesses uh, who saw this, tribal witnesses. And their stories didn't come out until years later, but those witnesses said, this one woman said, well, after they were slain, I saw um, foreigners above the trees, and I heard singing. And there were other others of the same tribe independently who said, we saw lights and we heard singing. And so that was instrumental actually in this, this people group coming to believe in Jesus Christ. I think that, that was a modern day sighting of angels that I think is very reliable. 
more could be said about angels. But the reason for this overview is just to give you some appreciation for why these early believers were tempted to be overly impressed with angels, believing that he was, they were somehow more than Jesus. Angels are amazing. They are powerful spiritual beings. They are involved in the world. They are sent by God for the sake of his church. It doesn't mean that they save us from every trial. It doesn't mean that every good thing that happens to us is an angel doing it. But they are there. And God wants us to know they're there and that they have a whole lot of power. It's just that they don't have anywhere near the power or the impressiveness of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have to go next. You have to go from something that's great to something that's even greater, and that's Jesus. So let's return to this overall theme in verses 8 to 13. More proof that we should worship the Lord and not angels or anything else. Three reasons why Jesus is greater than the angels. The writer quotes from three different psalms to give us three different reasons. We're going to look at those in turn and close with application. The first is this. Angels are attendants, but Jesus is the bridegroom. They're attendants, but Jesus is the bridegroom. Verses 8 and 9 are a quote from Psalm 45. They say this. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, Psalm 45 is a royal wedding song. If you read the whole thing, it's a celebration of the king and his wedding. And it's a sumptuous affair. It's a grand thing. It's at the palace. It's amazing. It's a celebration of the king of Israel who is getting married. He is the most handsome of the sons of men. His bride arrives in many colored robes as she is led to the king. Those things are in Psalm 45. So this context is a royal wedding. Imagine the royals getting married at Westminster Abbey. That's, That's Psalm 45, except it's the king of Israel who's being rejoiced over and sung about. So what happens at a big wedding like that? There are attendants who are doing all manner of things, getting ready for the big event. Food's being prepared. Wardrobes have to be picked out. Decorations, an itinerary of events. Dignitaries have to be invited. There's got to be seating to be arranged and all these things, right? Lots of servants are involved to pull this off because it's going to be a national event. But the writer of Hebrews says, this psalm is pointing beyond any of the kings of Israel. He says, this song is about the Son of God and His wedding. Of the Son, he says, and then he quotes the psalm, beginning with, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the God-king's wedding, meaning it is the wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. And what is said about the king, about King Jesus at his wedding, it's, it's, it's said, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. 
In other words, because of Jesus' love of righteousness and his hatred of wickedness, God has rewarded him. God has anointed him with gladness beyond that of anyone else. Why? Because this is his day where he's receiving his bride as the reward of his commitment to righteousness and his hatred of wickedness. Today he gets his bride. That's what Psalm 45 is really singing about, is Jesus and the joy, the oil of gladness that is his for having won his bride through his righteous acts. And we know what those are, don't we? That's what the cross is for. That's where he bears, he the sinless one, he who loved righteousness all his life, bears the penalty for wickedness in his own self. The wickedness of his bride that he is purchasing because she was not clean. She was full of rebellion and sin and wickedness and unrighteousness, but he bears all the blame for her. He bears all the punishment for her. And so God's justice is satisfied, and now he can have his bride as his prize. And he's glad. He has the oil of gladness that this is how it's turned out. This is his day to receive it. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 is looking to. It says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was that joy? It was the joy of bringing home all of his people that he would save from their sins, who would be with him forever in this union. He loves it. It's what he died to do. And this is a song, this Psalm 45 is a celebration of his gladness at this union. So friends, let that sink in. I mean, if you're a believer in Christ, you are the bride. (laughs) And no one is happier about that than Jesus. You might look at your life and say, that doesn't make any sense. Look at all the ways I fail. Look at all my shortcomings. How could Jesus be joyful about a relationship with me? But Jesus says, I didn't choose you because you were beautiful. I chose to make you beautiful. I chose to wash you with the water of the word and make you blameless and innocent without spot or wrinkle. And I'm going to bring you to myself. That's Ephesians 5.27. He brings the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. He died to do that, to to clean us up and bring us to himself in great gladness. How do the angels fit into all this? Well, it's his wedding, not theirs. Their attendance They serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. They're serving the bride, but they're not the groom. (laughs) The groom is Jesus. He's the the husband. He's the Savior. This is his day. This is his hour. And their supporting cast is what they are. (laughs) They're important. They're part of this thing. But they're, they're not the main event. That's Jesus. That's what Psalm 45 is telling us. That's why he quotes it. Here's the second reason Jesus is more awesome than the angels. Angels are helpers in time, but Jesus is the God of eternity. Helpers in time, 
God of eternity. Psalm, Psalm 102 is quoted here in verses 10 to 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The psalm is taken from, well, here's here's the introductory comment to Psalm 102, that little heading that happens before you read the verses. It's called, A Prayer of One Afflicted When He Is Faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. That's what Psalm 102 is about, and that's what this quote is taken from. So it's about a person who's in distress, who is discouraged because of physical or emotional suffering from whatever source, and they are longing for renewal, they want restored vitality, they're looking for hope. But where do they find it? Well, their only hope is in the God who is eternal and unchanging who is not bound by this world and all of its decay. Everything in creation will wear out like a garment, it says. Nothing is permanent. There's There's nothing you can grab onto and say, this will save me, because everything around you, everything that you can get your hands on is perishing. It's going to wear out. Nothing is permanent. Nothing can save. Hope comes from the God who is outside of all of that, from the God who laid the foundation of the earth and whose hands fashioned the heavens. He is not himself bound by time and decay like everything else. When you're in distress, there's no comfort to be had in a God who is in the same mess that we're in. (laughs) A God like that can't help you. But there's great comfort and hope in looking to the God who remains, though everything else perishes, who is the same and whose years will have no end. We can hope in the God who is sovereign over creation, who's going to roll it up like a robe and change it into something new, change it into something better. The afflicted person in the psalm, he gets strength for today because he knows the the eternal, unchanging, almighty God is going to renew all of creation one day. He's going to change it. And he has the power to renew me today. (laughs) He has the power to give me what I need to get through. So I'm going to seek him. I'm going to trust my life to him. That's why Psalm 102 is in this list. It's what you and I need in our distress, this God. When you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you're overwhelmed with life, you don't, and you just don't see how you're going to make it through, you need help that comes from outside this time-bound, perishing world. You need someone who holds eternity in his hands and has the power to undo all the perishing. And that's not the angel's. That's the Lord. That's the God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He has the eternal life to give because he's not time-bound. 
He isn't dependent on this decaying world. He's outside of it, and he can bring it in. He can bring you to eternity and carry you all the way. He can make it so that you don't perish and you don't decay like this wearing out world. And he's going to do it for all of those who trust in him, those who believe in Jesus. Angels help us in time. They can open prison doors. They can guard us in all our ways, but they're still confined to time and space like we are. Our hope is not in them, but in Jesus, who's the God of, the, of eternity. That's why he's superior to angels. Here's the third reason, which comes from the third psalm that's quoted. Angels are warriors, but Jesus is the conquering king. Verse 13 has a quote from Psalm 110 which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament and always referring to Jesus. The verse says this, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So the expected answer to the question is, he never said that to the angels. (laughs) He never did, but he did say that to the Son. Because the Son, whom we've been speaking about here in Hebrews, He's the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 3, this is spoken to Him. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 declares the coming victory of Jesus over all opposition to Him. He will put down the rebellion of the devil and his angels, and the rebellion of mankind, who each in their own way says about Jesus, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's the image in the parable in Luke 19. God will one day make all the enemies of Jesus a footstool for his feet. It's a picture of complete victory over someone who's now down here, and the king is on top. He's going to make them a footstool. There's complete victory. Jesus is the conquering king. He's establishing his kingdom of righteousness over the world. All evil will come to an end, and the renewed world will begin. And grace upon grace, Jesus will share that kingdom with his bride, who inherits salvation, who inherits this kingdom with him. The church, believers in Jesus Christ, we were once enemies of God. By by grace only are we not anymore. Paul said in Romans 5.10, we were enemies, but we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Though we deserve to be at the footstool, by grace God says, but not you, but not you and not you. You I'm going to give an inheritance. You I'm going to bring to myself in union. You I'm going to bring to share in my victory over evil, and over this world. God rescues us from our rebellion and makes us His beloved. This picture of Jesus from Psalm 110 gives comfort to believers because it means no matter how evil the world gets, no matter how troubling the news is, the final outcome is certain. Evil will not win. Jesus wins. And we win in him. Where do the angels fit into that? 
Again, verse 14, they serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The angels are foot soldiers in this battle against the forces of evil. They act on the king's orders to help out those who are going to be in the kingdom, those who are going to be saved. They're, doing, they're going on missions that Jesus sends them on. We only get glimpses of this unseen spiritual battle in the scriptures, but, but there's enough there to say it's going on. The angel who appeared to Daniel in a vision said, Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. There's a war going on. We have Revelation 12, 7 and 8, which says, War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, passages like that can lead to endless speculation about spiritual warfare. Not all of it's helpful, but one thing is certain, angels fight on behalf of the church. They are warriors. They are foot soldiers in the great battle for souls. But Jesus is the king. He's the conqueror. He's the one in the vision of Daniel 7, to whom was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Angels do their part in the battle, but the dominion belongs to Jesus. That's why he's greater than them. Let's bring this to a close. Let's make application to our lives. All of this discussion about Jesus and how he's greater than the angels is because early Christians had a misplaced passion. They believed in Jesus. They followed him. They were even suffering to some degree for him, but they were overly preoccupied with angels. Given the opposition they were facing for Christianity, maybe their thinking was along these lines. Yes, I need Jesus for forgiveness of sin, but an angel can get me out of prison. <laughs> yes, Jesus is one day going to usher in a new world, but today an angel can get me out of harm's way. I can see how there would be a temptation to start saying, you know, angels, come to my rescue. It was a misplaced passion. It was a misplaced hope. But we can do the same thing today. You might not be passionate about angels, but there could be something else you're more passionate about than Jesus. You and I can genuinely have a saving faith, forgiveness of sins, but day in and day out, our functional hope can be in something else that we think is what's really going to make the difference for me. Our thinking can be this. I believe in Jesus. I want Him in my life. But what really excites me, what really makes me thrive, the thing I want to talk about the most is having good health, having my freedom, or a certain political solution to our problems, or a spouse or financial security, or a good reputation, or things like that. Those things may be good in themselves, 
like angels are, but they aren't greater than Jesus. They can't replace him as our chief good in life and death. Knowing Jesus Christ, drawing confidence and comfort from Him, that's the bedrock on which we can live in hope and fear no evil and be sure that the best is yet to come. So let's make Jesus our primary passion. Like Paul, who said in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When Jesus gets our deepest passion, then everything else finds its proper place of appreciation, even if it were an angel from heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I do believe we can relate to this. You change the subject matter, and you put something else there, and this passage is like speaking to our hearts like an arrow. And that's what you mean it for. And so, Lord, you know what you're doing with it. And I just pray that you would help us now to respond in faith and welcome you and welcome all that you want to do in our lives and, and see you as the best thing that we could ever want. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.